The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Good morning. It's good to be back on the campus of Pensacola Christian College. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be turning to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 15, if you will, this morning. Luke chapter 15. And for the next couple days, we're going to be having a conversation on evangelism. A conversation on evangelism. And uh, I just want to say thank you to the administration once again for allowing my wife and I to be back here on campus. We love it here. It has been our uh, privilege to be a part of this college and uh, to send students here for so many years. Uh, Miss Lori is sitting right over here. And so, yeah, she's only going to wave. She won't stand. Um, and so we love this place. We met here. That's another reason to love this place. We met on the ice skating rink in the year of our Lord, 1992. The greatest love story ever told began in the sports center. And, uh, and so we, we nearly collided, and that's when our eyes met, and I was done. And so... Um, Back then when we had assigned tables, I had a, someone on my floor that happened to be sitting at her table. I didn't know that, but he's like, hey, your name come, came up at dinner. And, uh, and so we weren't in this auditorium. We were in the Dale Horton. It was Bible conference. We were sitting underneath the balcony, and I had 12 guys that we were going stag to Bible conference. And she was sitting just a few rows behind us. And one of my friends said, I bet you won't ask her out in front of all of these people. And so who could not who could resist taking that dare and so I asked her and she said yes and so we went and got some Pepsi and popcorn it's probably coke I think we do coke products here at Pensacola and and uh, and that's how that began and the reason I intro with that story is because we have a we have a story in Luke chapter 15 actually three stories there's a story of the lost sheep there's a story of a lost coin And there's the story of a lost son. And we're going to deal with the story of the lost coin today. And that coin is something special because it's part of bridal jewelry. So let's read Luke chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. This is what the Bible says. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she had found it, she called her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. I wonder this morning in our chapel, do we have any young ladies who are officially engaged? In other words, you have the ring. Could you just slip up your hand? We... Do we have, oh, we have a young lady right down here in front. It does not pay to sit in the front row. Could you, would you mind, would you mind standing up and just, just coming up here just for a minute? I won't embarrass you. I I mean, other than this, other than having you come up here, that, that's kind of embarrassing. But other, miss, what is your name? Grace. And where are you from, Grace? Virginia. Virginia. And do you, can I see your ring? Yes. (laughs) 
I love it. She says, yes, yes, you can see my ring. Oh, that is beautiful. He did a great job. Oh, is he, are you right there? I could not have planned this any better. And your name? I'm David. David, way to go. You have good taste. Not only in young ladies, but in diamonds. And, and, and could you tell all of us, is that a real diamond? It, it is. Yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Congratulations. Do, do you have a date yet? Yeah, June 24th. June 24th. It's David, right? So I just said David and Grace. Now, David, if she lost that diamond, would you be a little concerned? <laughs> Grace, would you be concerned? Oh, yeah. Do you think you might search for that? Yeah, yeah. Listen. Congratulations on your engagement. We're always excited when the Lord brings two godly young people together to serve him. This is the only embarrassment. You may go ahead and take your seat. And the reason I wanted confirmation on this is because this is the story that we're about ready to be told about this bridal piece of jewelry that has been lost. And I just want to confirm, look at that is beautiful. Miss Grace, you are very lucky. And sir, you have found a good woman. You may take your seat. Let's all give them a hand. Wow, that they would be sitting side by side. How fantastic is that? Now, this is the story that's being related to us because it says in Luke chapter 15 here in verse number 10, what woman having 10 pieces of silver when she loses one that she goes in search to find it? And according to Bishop K.C. Pillai in his book, Old and New Testament Orientalism Teachings, the 10 pieces of silver are about the size of an American quarter On one side is the husband's coat of arms or his family's stamp. On the other side, the year that it was made. And it has been passed down from generation to generation. And the bride wears these special pieces of coins about her head. You've probably seen this in pictures of Middle Eastern women. And these coins have hooks that fasten them to the top of the hair. Five are worn on the right side of the forehead. Five worn on the left side of the forehead. And... Since they've been passed from generation to generation, if the husband should die, the wife must give those pieces of silver back to her husband's family, and to lose one is considered a curse. Doesn't that change the way you think about losing a coin? This is not a 10-cent piece. Some of you, I know we don't use change much in our society anymore, uh, but the reality is if we lost a quarter... Some of you, if you lost a half dollar, you would just say, "Eh, oh, well, not a big deal. But I'll guarantee you this, if Miss Grace looked down at her hand while she was sitting in class today and she saw that the diamond from her ring was missing, she is going to start retracing her steps. And the Bible says that this bride, in this case, she began sweeping the floor. She began turning over the furniture. She was looking for this lost piece of silver. She says she lights a candle, she sweeps the house, she seeks diligently till she finds it. And so, what is the point that's being made? We ought to have as much concern for the lost souls of men that we do over losing the diamond in our wedding ring. 
We ought to be searching for souls the way that a bride searches for her lost piece of bridal jewelry. And remember, these houses that the uh, Israel were living in, they had only small slit windows. They were very dark inside and they had dirt floors. And what happens when you sweep a dirt floor? Sometimes you pile dirt over the very thing that you're looking for. So she likes a candle and she gets down on her hands and knees and she's running her fingers through the dirt and she's looking for this thing that was lost. And this is the type of concern that we as believers are supposed to have for the lost souls of men. But most of the time we can't even be accused of having concern for the lost souls of men, let alone frantically searching till we find that which was lost. And I think part of that is because we have bought into three myths about evangelism. So I'd like to cover those with you with our time that we have remaining here today. The first myth of witnessing is that separation means isolation. Separation means isolation. And by the way, um, those who would say, and I would agree, don't you think that the Bible teaches, and you can just nod your head because I think that we're all going to affirm these statements, but don't you think that the Bible teaches that we should come out from among them and be ye separate? Yeah. Don't you think that the Bible teaches sanctification and holiness? Yes. Don't you think that the Christian ought to look different than the world? And I'm not just talking about their clothes. I'm talking about in all manners. As a pastor preached last night in the church service, we ought to look different. There ought to be a reason of hope and we ought to be, you know, relatively happy people. I know finals are coming up, so I say relatively happy people. This fair, this... Um, parable is being spoken to the scribes and Pharisees. If you'll look with me in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, back to the beginning of the chapter, it says, Then drew near unto him the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. You see, even Christ, though he, and we would all agree that Christ was separate, and holy and sanctified, but Christ rubbed shoulders with sinners. Because sinners need the gospel. And though we should be uniquely separate from the world, I believe in high standards. I, I believe that we ought to pursue personal holiness, but I think what we've done is we've bought into bad theology. You see, the theology, uh, let me give you a practical quote. Ships don't sink because of the water around them. They sink because of the water that gets into them. You see, we have this mistaken notion that if we're completely isolated from all temptation, if we're completely isolated from the world, that somehow we're not going to fall so let me reorient your theology all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they're there in a perfect environment. Who do they walk with every day in the cool of the day? Who fellowships with them on a daily basis, face to face, but God himself? 
The perfect father in the perfect environment, they have no internet, they have no radio, they have no bad influences. And yet, according to Romans chapter 5, by one man centered in into the world. Why? Because James teaches us that we're not corrupted by the things that are outside of us. We're corrupted by the things that are inside of us. Because it is from our own lust that we are deceived and enticed. And this is why the Bible constantly tells us as believers that we must walk in the spirit or we will fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Unfortunately, in our quest for holiness, some believe that separation from sin means isolation from all sinners. But how will we get this much-needed gospel to the world unless we're taking it to the very sinners that need it most? I've actually had Christians brag to me, I've never even had an unsaved person in my house. May I say then shame on you. If we're not opening the very house that we're supposed to be stewarding for the gospel's sake. So myth number one, I think we should understand is that separation is not isolation. And secondly, we have a mistaken belief that the world is gospel hardened. The world is gospel hardened. Hardened. Here's what the Bible says regarding the souls of men and those who would trust Christ as Savior. In John 4.35, Jesus teaches his disciples and he says this, Say ye not that there are yet four months and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. The truth is the fields are white unto harvest, but we don't have the laborers who are telling others about Jesus. And according to Barna's research, only about 5% of the North American Christians have given the gospel in the last year. Well, of course we're not reaching the world. Coke believes in their product more than we believe in the power of Jesus. Fewer are going to their neighborhoods or their workplace to give their friend the gospel. And everyone has an excuse as to why it cannot be done. Everywhere I've ever ministered, I have been told this is the hardest place to reach people with the gospel. Have you heard that here in Pensacola? Why? Because we're in the Bible Belt. You are. I'm no longer there. Um, But we're in the Bible Belt. It's so hard. Everybody thinks they're a Christian already. When we went to Ohio, I was told, hey, listen, this is a difficult place to minister. I'm sure that Dr. Much in Tennessee and Colorado and other places he's ministered have have experienced that same thing. Hey, this is the hardest place. I remember when I went to Houston, Texas and and Dr. Pope, I I was in the neighborhood of Prestonwood. He says, that's the hardest neighborhood to reach people with the gospel. That's where our church used to be located at. I've knocked on every door. When I went to Washington State, Listen to this. Awana puts out statistics and they say that only 3% of Washingtonians go to church on any given Sunday. 
And when I was confronted with that figure, I said, yes, 97% of the people I invite to church aren't already going. The odds are someone's going to come with me eventually. Can we stop competing for where is the hardest place to win people with the gospel and just admit it's always been hard to reach people with the gospel and it's harder when we don't give the gospel. But I will tell you this, I don't think the world's gospel hardened because we have seen it in Colville. We have a town of less than 5,000 people and in the last nine years we have seen Not just a few, but over 148 individuals trust Christ as Savior in the last 10 years. And we didn't just win them and let them go. I'm not a catch and release guy, you know. We added them to the church. They're, They're functioning as a part of our local church. The world's not gospel hardened. We are because God is still drawing people to himself. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The God is still giving grace to people. The grace unto salvation hath appeared to all men. The Holy Spirit is still convicting of sin just as he did for you when you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. But the reality is that we're missing power because we're not even praying for souls. In 2013, we started a men's prayer time at 6 in the morning. And the main reason for that is that we would pray for souls to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. For The Bible says, could you not watch with me for one hour? So from 6 to 7 on Wednesday mornings, uh, our men gather at the church and we pray that God would give us souls. If you're not praying for souls, how can you expect God to give you souls? And yet, I will tell you this, you are the only plan that God has to reach this world. I was given this story some time back. I'd like to read it to you if you don't mind. When Jesus returned to heaven following his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb, the angels gathered in amazement and they gazed at the wounds on his hands and his feet and in his side and they shuddered recalling his suffering. And finally, Gabriel said to Jesus... Master, you suffered terribly down, though, down there, but they don't even appreciate or know the actual sacrifice. And Jesus says, not yet. Not yet. Right now, there's only a handful of people in Jerusalem that know. Gabriel asked them, what have you done to let everyone else know? He says, Jesus responds, I've asked Peter, James, and John, and a few others to spread the news. They're going to tell others who tell others until the message spreads around the entire world. But Gabriel, knowing the frailty of humanity and the nature of human beings, he says, so what's plan B? And Jesus says, I have no plan B. There is no alternative strategy. I am counting on them. And I'll tell you this today. Jesus is still counting on you to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. With the few minutes that we have left today, I would like to move on to our third myth, the 
world is not gospel hardened, but the church certainly has become that way. And I wish we would get back to believing in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict people of sin and draw people to himself. But number three, only, there's only one way to witness. The third myth is that there's only one way to witness. If, uh, if you are like me and spent most of your life in conservative, independent Baptist fundamentalism, that may... You may have two, door-to-door and bus ministry, but those are the only ways that God works, supposedly. And so um, I, I I, I just think that we see different in the New Testament, and I'm going to hopefully give you some illustrations in regards to this. There are multiple ways to be witnessing, and God has given you a unique personality, and he wants to use that to draw people to himself, and I'm going to hope to uncover some of that in our third point here. I really like the illustration of when D.L. Moody was preaching and um, he was preaching on evangelism and when he had finished, an elderly lady came up to him and said, "Uh, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way that you do evangelism. And Dr. Moody said, you know, I really don't like it either. Could you tell me how you do it? And she said, well, I don't do it. He said, well, then I like my way better. I would say this, we won't all witness the same way, but we all need to be witnessing. We won't all give the gospel the same way. We don't all have the same personalities. We don't have the same drive, but, but God wants to use your unique personality. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to put up a slide, and that way if I don't get through all of them, you'll have all the references um, uh, available to you. I want to give you some perspective on how God, even through the disciples and others in the New Testament, drew people to himself. And then what I would like you to do is be thinking about in what, per, in what way could God use my personality to give the gospel to someone else? First character I'd like to bring to your attention is Peter. Peter's fairly a confrontational person. Every time you see Peter in the New Testament, he's the brave one. He steps out. He's not really concerned what other people think. And, you know, I think to some level we're all that way. I mean, the opposite of that. Um, Don't you like when people like you? (laughs) Uh, Am I strange that, you know, I prefer people like me rather than not like me? Uh, but, But Peter... You know, he's the one who steps out of the boat. He's the one who strikes the high priest ear off. He's, you know, he's just this confrontational guy. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to verses 7 and 10, the Bible says, As they spake unto the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came unto them, being grieved that they taught people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked him, By what power or by what name have you done this? Here's Peter's response. Be it known unto you all that to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. So here he is in in a way street preaching. He's surrounded by these Pharisees, these Sadducees, and they are grilling him and he gives the gospel just as bold as he possibly could be. And maybe, maybe that's your personality. And maybe as you encounter individuals, it it doesn't bother you to speak boldly for Christ. And I'm just telling you, we need you to be giving the gospel. If you're one of these bold individuals like Peter who boldly proclaimed Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, even the midst of those who disagreed with him, who, who I would say even hated him, we need you. 
But Peter's personality is not the only personality that there is. I think sometimes when we stand in the pulpit, we're like, be bold. And everybody's like, that's not my personality. But just because that's not our personality doesn't let us off the hook of sharing the gospel. How about Paul in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3? Paul is what I consider to be an intellectual. He's well-schooled. I think when I added up in the New Testament, I think it rounds out to be about 15 years of schooling that he's undergone. He is the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's very intellectual. And if you read the book of Romans, it's like a law treatise. It, he just lays out this case and he deconstructs um, what the Israelites or the Jews believed. And he says, this is why you ought to believe in the Bible. This is why you ought to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. This is why Jesus is the Messiah. And he goes back and he he addresses who Abraham is in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. You can see this apologetic approach. What shall we say? This is what the Bible says, Romans 4, 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pretending to the flesh is found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he have whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, because in the first part of Romans, the Jews are saying, hey, listen, we're special because we got the oracles of God. We're special because God used the, gave us the Ten Commandments and we have Father Abraham. And Paul just begins to disassemble their thought process. And he says, listen, you're special, but not in the way you think. You're special because God chose to reveal himself through Israel, but you're not saved because of that. How was Abraham saved? He believed God. He put his faith and trust in the future Messiah that God was going to bring. And so he begins to deal with this very intellectual apologistic approach, apologetic approach. And some of you are super intelligent. I wish that I was. Some of you, you know, it's like the answers in Genesis type people. You know what I'm talking about? They're just really intelligent and they have the patience for it. I don't, I don't want to sit around and debate. I just want to say, this is what the Bible says. And then we just do that. I'm just so simple. I, can't, I don't want to do that. But I know that there are some of you that you're like, that's right up my alley. That's what I want to do. Then can I ask you, please, can you hone that skill to be able to sit and have complex conversations with those who are maybe doubting their faith? but certainly to give the gospel. How about the blind man in John chapter 9, verses 9 to 11? He just tells the story how Jesus healed him from blindness and brought him salvation. In John chapter 9, verses 9 to 12, he says, some said, this is he. Others said, he's like him. But he said, I am he. This is funny. They're, they're debating whether this guy was really blind or not. He's like, no, I was the blind guy. He's not anymore. I guess that's why, where the doubt comes in. Verse 10, therefore they said unto him, how are thine eyes open? He said unto him, a man that is called Jesus made clay. He anointed my eyes. He said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. I went and washed and received my sight. Is it any simpler to give the gospel? He just gives his own testimony. I could do the exact same thing with someone that I encounter. One of the things that I like to ask people is what is the, what's the most 
amazing event that's ever, that you've ever attended or you've ever, um, it's ever happened to you in your life. I was sitting on a plane heading to Iowa here a few weeks ago. I sat next to an elderly lady. I asked her, you know, uh, where are you going? She said, I'm going to visit my daughter. I asked her this question. Hey, listen, uh, what's the most amazing event? She's elderly. So I'm thinking, you know, this, she's going to have all these stories. What's the most amazing thing that's ever happened to you? And she goes, I'm going to it right now. Whoa, you're going right now. She's, I said, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to hear the rock band, the Eagles. I've always wanted to see them live. In, now, I know we're at a Bible college. You're like, I don't know who the Eagles are. I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to know these things. Okay, it's okay. It's okay. She says, my daughter knew that this was on my bucket list. And she bought me tickets and she's flying me in Des Moines and she's picking me up and we're going to this concert together. Now, what happens when you ask someone about the most amazing thing, the biggest event that they've ever encountered in their life and they go on for 20 minutes about how they've been waiting or, or about what has happened to them? What is their natural response to you? What is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to you? So I now get to take as much time as she took. <laughs> Say the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me is when I was eight years old. My pastor preached a message on hell. I was scared to death. I, live, I have a twin brother and so we had bunk beds until we were 22 years old. <laughs> awesome. So I, I left those bunk beds, came to college, got bunk beds... Always had roommates. Then I got married. No more bunk beds. But here's what happened. At eight years old, I leaned over the bunk bed. I'm talking to my brother, Kevin. And I said, hey, man, that sermon is really sticking with me. What if I die tonight? I would go to hell. He's like, yeah, I'm scared about that too. Well, the Indiana University basketball, I grew up in Indiana, so my dad was a big Hoosier fan. And so he says, um, the, the game's on. We never interrupt dad while the game is on. And so we're like, well, what do we do? You know, do we go down the hallway? And so I can remember walking down the hallway and, and saying, uh, both of us to mom and dad, hey, listen, um, we, we remember pastor, pastor's message and we need to be saved. I, that's the only time I've ever seen my dad get up and turn off Indiana basketball. And I knelt next to the ugliest plaid couch that everyone had in the 70s. Um, well, they bought it in the 70s, but we still had it in the 80s. And so... I remember kneeling down next to that couch and asking Jesus to save me. Now listen, do you think you could do that with your testimony? Just, just give your testimony. How about the woman at the well in John chapter 4 verses 28 and 29? I have to move quickly because we just have a few minutes left. The woman left her, this is John chapter 4, the Bible says, the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith unto men, come and see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is this not the Christ? Whether it's this woman, she goes into town and she says, hey, listen, I can't tell you all that Jesus does, but he told me everything that I've ever done. You need to meet him. And she brings people back to meet Jesus. Every time we see Andrew in the New Testament, he's not giving the gospel, but he's always bringing someone to Jesus. Andrew's the one who brought Peter to Jesus to be a disciple. Andrew's the one who brought the boy with the fishes and the loaves to Jesus in order to distribute. He's always bringing someone to Jesus. If you're scared just to give the gospel, couldn't you bring them to church with you? And last, Matthew, Levi, and I'll be done. 
After these, this is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 31. After these things, after Matthew was called, Levi was called as a disciple, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. He says unto me, follow me. And he left all and rose up and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and others. They sat down with them. But the scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples saying, why do you eat with and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are Six. So what was, what was Levi? He was a businessman. He was a tax collector. Who wants to hang out with other tax collectors except for other tax collectors? Because nobody wants to hang. You guys make a habit of hanging out with the IRS? No. I don't want to make friends with the IRS. But Matthew was one of them. And what he did was he took his position as a businessman and he says, you know who I can influence with the gospel other businessmen. And so I'm going to have them over to my house and we're going to have a feast and I'm going to share with them the gospel. And some of you are not going to be pastors or missionaries or evangelists. Many of you will, but some of you won't. And you're going to go into this field and only you're going to have this sphere of influence. And if you don't use that to steward the gospel, then what are we doing? Let me end with this illustration. There was a football player. His name was Bob Shank, he's a 172-pound defensive tackle his senior year of high school, and he had a coach that had a unique way of getting players' attention. When a player was caught out of position, the coach would grab his face. This is back in the day when we could do this. He would grab his face mask, and he would yell into his helmet, and the, the yelling would echo inside that football helmet. And he was caught out of play, and the, the coach just said, hey, listen, you're, you're not supposed to be playing the whole field. And so he took his foot, and he drew a big square And he says, your job is to stand inside this square and anybody who comes into this square, you knock them down. That's your job. He now runs a global corporation. And when he feels overwhelmed, he says, I think of my coach who says, this is your one responsibility. And I'll just say, whatever town the Lord leads you to, wherever you find yourself, I would would just draw a square like we have around Colville. We've kind of put our heel in the dirt and said, this is our responsibility. And everyone inside of that square is our responsibility to find a way to give them the gospel. And wherever the Lord takes you, when you go home for Christmas this year, why don't you just draw a square around your community, around your neighborhood and say, this is what the Lord has given to me. I'm responsible for this. Lord, would you help me reach someone with the gospel? I wonder, are you sweeping the house the way Grace would sweep her house if she lost her diamond? You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.